Hi, and welcome to Talking Realty, the podcast where we focus on saving home sellers time, money, and headaches. If you're selling any property, a flip, a new build, an income property, or even the place you call home, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Glenn Witten, 20-year broker and founder of the Ohio Property Group. I'm here to share the endless lessons my sellers have taught me over the years. Talking Realty is brought to you by the Ohio Property Group, a family-owned brokerage where we help hundreds of home sellers save millions of dollars and avoid countless headaches every year. Check us out at ohiomlsflatfee.com and learn how you can sell it. We can help. Whether you're in Ohio or not, you can get our free monthly newsletter along with dozens of free selling tools by visiting us at TalkingRealty.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss a thing. Now, let's get to it. Welcome back to Talking Realty. Today, we're excited to have Kurt Euler with us. Kurt is a standout figure in the business world, known for his exceptional leadership and strategic acumen with a career that spanned nurturing startups to directing companies with massive revenues. Kurt's been at the helm of an $880 million IPO or initial public offering and has played a key role in numerous business acquisitions. But Kurt's experience isn't just about big business. He's a pioneer in the marketing world, shaping the very tools and strategies we use every day in social media, influencer marketing, and location-based advertising. His impact in the real estate industry over the last six years has been profound, driving technological innovations and marketing strategies that are used globally. At EXP Realty, Kurt's efforts in expanding the agent base from 32,000 to 89,000 agents in just three years speaks volumes about his skill in fostering organic growth. His work has significantly enhanced the business capabilities of thousands of realtors across the numerous brokerages, providing valuable insights into what drives success in real estate. Kurt's understanding of the recent NAR lawsuits offers a unique and invaluable perspective for anyone in the real estate market, whether you're buying or selling. Welcome, Kurt. How are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for being here. So tell me a little bit about your journey and how it led to where you are now, particularly any stop-offs that relate to selling real estate. Start wherever you like. Yeah, so I did not start in real estate at all. I started in other technology. Actually, I started originally when I was 14. I had two LLCs I had to form when I was 14 because <laughs> I was doing well enough in business. And so nothing wrong with selling lawn care. I ended up nope. selling that business for six figures when I went to college. But I've been, uh, I have a background in high growth technology companies. And so mm-hmm. starting companies and actually creating some of the technology that we all use today and is used by literally hundreds of millions of people on a, on a daily basis. And so that's been my background, but from that journey, it took me into helping startups and startups are very entrepreneurial and got me very much to start some doors open that had me start talking to individual business owners Mm -hmm. around the country. And so that's, oh, that's become quickly become a near and dear to my heart. But I have been very successful with a couple of companies. I can tell you how to lose a fortune as well. (laughs) But I came to real estate. So at this point, it's probably about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And now a friend named Alan Pinstein sent me a message. We were fraternity brothers and just knew each other only from LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. sent me a note and said, hey, I've heard you talked your wife into letting you take 18 months on a sabbatical after exiting out of one of your companies. (laughs) Can I've just done that. I have another company. I want to have that conversation. Can we grab coffee to you walk me through that before, before I would journey into that discussion? Mm-hmm. And he's during that conversation, he told me about this second company he had in real estate. And so building technology that helps individual real estate agents 
thousands and thousands of real estate agents basically provide that search on their individual websites and keep their consumer data confidential compared to like Zillow and others. And I was like, yeah, I'll talk to them, but you know, too small. And little did I know, four or five days later on Christmas Eve of 2019, I would join that company. And so we grew that really well. I ended up selling it to a company, a little company at the time called EXP uh, Realty XP. or EXP World Holdings. Yep. They've now become the largest residential real estate company in the U.S. and the world. Yeah, so right. I joined them when they were about 32,000 agents. We built a bunch of things for them. And then when I left, they were at 89,000 agents. And so that's had me in, in real estate. Outside of there, I've invested uh, in a fair number of properties myself. And I also have invested in some not successful real estate prop tech <laughs> companies as well. So. so every time you step up to the plate, it's not a, a grand slam. Is that what you're telling me? No, not, not at all. I, my, my, my wife and I have different risk tolerances. She made me start thinking about my angel investing when I was doing it as much more of philanthropy, yeah. like write the check, anticipate it's never yeah. coming yeah. back. So today I help mid-market companies. So that's companies, you know, usually 25 million to about 500 million in mm -hmm. annual revenue. I help them grow. But my wife and I, we always steward a little bit of both of our times for helping develop the next level of, of leaders. And so okay. we're big proponents of high achieving servant leadership. Yep. And sometimes that's coaching high schoolers that as they're working their way through. Other times it's very often entrepreneurs that are starting businesses or maybe run an electrical company or something right. like that. Well, the computer is the new factory. So it's certainly the time is upon us if you've got an entrepreneurial spirit, which a lot of my sellers do. I mean, many of them are investors, many of them are builders. So they certainly get the fact that you couldn't ask for a better time or a better place than the United States in 2024 to be uh, an entrepreneur, at least not in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and, and technology touches everything. I've been a part of some really large brokerages. I'm consulting with another brokerage right now on something. And it's like, I hear brokerages sometimes, not everybody, but individuals will say, well, we're not a technology company. I'm like, that's funny. Name one position right. in your company that's not using very diverse types of technology on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So the only question is, do you control it and build it? Do you partner with right. somebody or do you just license it? Yeah. That's the same case with anybody, including us as individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll, we'll kind of get into this. Like people don't realize they, even if somebody's not an entrepreneur, they're not a business owner, that technology comes into buying real estate in ways that from conversations that my wife and I have, like people don't understand it, understand what's happening with their data and, no. and the technology that's going on behind the scenes that's impacting for good and for bad sometimes them buying and finding their next home. Yeah, I have a note about that. So we will circle back on that. But since we're still talking about your background a little bit, I have two tell me about questions that I'm going to hit you with. You might not see these coming. So number one, okay. tell me about the White House. I saw that in your background. What what was that about? I see you sitting at a table by the president. What is there something I should know? I mean, technically, I was across from the president, <laughs> not not next to him. But yes. Yeah, I, I was asked by the by President Trump's White House and him to put together a symposium at the White House mm -hmm. with a couple dozen business owners that qualify for using the Made in the USA label. It's companies that oh. almost everything in the products are sourced here in the U.S. And so they had a belief that if you help those companies, then that just ripples through through the 98 to 99% sure. of American companies that do things overseas, partially or fully as well. Yes. And so it was really cool. To spend a little bit of time individually is one of those things. Wow, being able to to tell friends. So I'm going to the White House tomorrow. <laughs> I have to cancel some meetings. Right. It's not something I usually do. Maybe I'll get to say that one of these days. We'll see. All right. Yeah. The other thing I noticed in researching you is that at one time, well, let me just ask a question. Tell me about 
the beard. The battle beard. <laughs> I saw this. Uh, for, for those of you who haven't looked this guy up, you should. There's some great pictures of you with, with the, you got the Grizzly Adams things going on. So it's, I, I noticed your clean shaven. I did. Today. What, and sometimes what it got a little bit, before I before I learned about needing to wax it and ta- oil it to tailor it down, I it, it got pretty long. So, I, I mean, it, think about this. I cut like eight inches off at one time and it was still like a six, you know, five or six inch beard. And yeah, it, it started as just, you know, I'm not going to shave for a little while. And I mean, if I shave in the morning, I have to shave before we go mm-hmm. out again in the evening, mm-hmm. but it, it did take a couple of years to grow out. Finally, I did trim it. One of my, I, I don't think I should have answered it this way. My wife asked me, how long are you going to let this keep going? <laughs> and my response was, well, I, I was joking. And I was like, well, I'm wondering if I get it long enough, could I wrap it around like a scarf? <laughs> And it was really clear from the facial expression that I needed to do a major trend. Yeah, day. it's time. Thank you for that. Thanks for indulging me. Okay, so we're here to talk about the National Association's recent legal tanglings. And I don't know if you want to summarize this or if you want me to, but what can you tell me? Because my audience is mostly home sellers, right. mostly individuals, some companies. And what we really want to get into is what we think this is going to do to the industry. But for now, can you tell me a little bit about what happened? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned I mean, whether you want to give a summary or not, I can kind of give my feedback on it a little bit. I mean, you're, it, this is what you do every day. So, I mean, I, I have a lot of feedback on it, but I think it, it does impact where you're at. And I think the market's going to shift more to what you've been doing for years already. Yeah. So the, the summary version is that several months ago, a bunch of home sellers got together and decided to sue their realtors. These these people had sold their homes over the previous two or three years, I think 2020 to 2022 or 23. They get together, they get a lawyer, they sue all their realtors, and they want their commissions back. The legal wranglings, I don't really follow, but I know that they won. Right or wrong, they won a $1.8 billion, with a B, billion-dollar verdict in Burnett versus the National Association of Realtors and several large brokerages. And that was only a couple of brokerages. And the next day, similar lawsuits were filed against some other brokerages. And we've continued to see that kind of go through. So it was a, a, a a big step. And like Illy, going to continue seeing through through other organizations as well. Are these like, these are copycat type lawsuits, you think? I, the one the next day, my understanding was it was a copycat. It was by the the same uh, lawyer oh, uh, okay. law firm that, that, that led the main thing. They were prepared, ready to go for it, as you can imagine. I don't know about the other suits that have kind of gone through in the okay. country. So from your understanding of these, why did these home <laughs> sellers sue? Well, what was what was their beef? Did the home sellers actually have a beef, or did the lawyers have a, have a bring a bring a beef to them because they get a thirty-five to forty percent commission? There is from that. Um, that. There's a lot of that talk, but yeah. the outcomes of it and what was discussed was that buyers had a perception that they they believed that they paid a commission that they either shouldn't have paid or was too high for selling their homes. Oh, the sellers. Okay, so they felt that they maybe got railroaded or somehow they got tricked into. Right. Yeah, one of the sides felt like that they were that they they paid fees that they either should not have or were too high. Okay, they did not know that they could negotiate them. So they, a, they and, and that was their perception, and the courts agreed with them. They, so essentially, they cried foul, sued, right. and the court agreed. I'm assuming it's on appeal. I, I believe it is. So we probably won't know the real disposition of this for quite a long time. Well, we, we may not know the real disposition of that, and, and I've heard a number of true legal experts that are lawyers that do this every day. Mm -hmm. I've heard five to eight and I've heard eight to 10 years. If this fully goes through before that single judgment could Mm -hmm. get appealed, because 
with a number that big, there's going to be appeals, I would expect, until it kind of goes through. But from a consumer perspective, people that are buying and selling homes today, right. we're already seeing brokerages, we're seeing agents change. Right. And so th the market is making adjustments as it should, regardless of whether or not that lawsuit ends up being overturned or not. So to that end, what changes do you see that brokerages are making, um, that agents are making as a result of this this activity. There's one specific one we've seen already. And then a lot of the rest of this is hypothesis because most right. brokerages haven't made a, a big change yet. But so a couple of brokerages came to an uh, agreement prior to it going to court right. settlement. And what their decision was that some other brokerages are following is that their current real estate agents no longer have to be members of the National Association of Realtors. So they can be a licensed real estate agent, but not a member mm -hmm. of NAR which to me actually can ends up being not necessarily a great thing in a lot of states. Not that I have a problem with regulations, but there's a code of ethics that you have with industry organizations like NAR and in other industries as well that give you a way to go back and appeal without having to just go to court necessarily right. for it. But that's something that we saw through the settlements right away. A number of brokerages have gone through it. Now there's what I think is going to continue to happen. I think if you look back, there's a lot of the judgment that happened where I don't agree. I don't agree with the judgment because it was kind of portrayed in this thing that said the traditional way of buying and selling a home is the seller has a four to six percent commission that they're going to share with the agent on the other side, mm -hmm. and that's just what you have to take. Well, from your business, you know that that's not the only model that's right. out there, and I'm not sure that an agent necessarily has to go through or should be obligated to go explain the other business models that are available. But when I look at the industry and I've been in the industry, it's rare for me to see any agent that truly explain both, I mean, the value and all the things that they do right. in a way that I would expect. When I go to a, a financial planner, when I go to a dentist at times, I, like what's their training? Mm -hmm. Why, you know, I, I need an oral surgery. I want to know, well, how many of these do you do? Well, a lot of the, the average agent doesn't do that. Even right. a high volume agent doesn't do that. And so I think what we're going to see is a perhaps a push from the brokerage, but definitely from the better agents that want to keep growing is that they're going to come through to start really explaining what they do. Or I actually, if I was an agent, I would be explaining a little bit of here's what I do is that full service necessarily agent mm -hmm. and why I justify this price. And there are other models out there. So there's the done for you, the DIY and a spectrum of services in between. Mm -hmm. And to me, I would always justify from a service perspective, why you should work with the model that I have. Right. But most agents don't do that. They're they're barely able to do a real good listing presentation, I right. find. When you're talking about a traditional agent, why do you think it is that they have kind of gotten away from, or I don't know if they ever did, explaining, here's the entire value proposition for what I'm going to charge yeah. you and what you're going to get? That's a great question. I think it's twofold. One is until the last, you know, you know, 12 to 18 months, we've really been, you know, recently in the last 10 years in a, in a really good housing market across most of the country. So they haven't had to justify value right. as much. But I, I think the larger thing is real estate is one of the few industries where you look at and there's a whole lot of part-timers. NER says something like the, the average you know annual income for a full-time agent, is something like 40 or $45,000. I've heard sometimes lower. Yeah. And I go, I, I want to see the actual, I've never seen the actual question that they asked because right. I think what the question probably is from having done a lot of primary research, I think the question is probably, is selling real estate your only job, which would bring in part-timers as well? Because right. I can't imagine that somebody who is working 
you know, 35 to 70 hours a week selling real estate is earning that, that income. But even without that, we know that about half or even sometimes up to 60% of all realtors and real estate agents as well have sold zero to two homes in the previous 12 months. 12 months. When I go get a personal injury lawyer, when I go to my dentist and I go to my mechanic, I, I'm not going out and seeing the average mechanic down the street and saying like, hey, half of them out there haven't fixed the car in the previous 12 right. months and then pull up front and then say, hey, take my Lexus and let's go work on right. it. But that's what the way real estate has been. And, and there's a lot of beauty in that. It does allow people to start it as a side hustle and grow in their business. But but there's a vast difference between somebody that's done one or 12 houses in a year and somebody right. that's done 80. Right. And, and, and the industry as a whole has has not really pushed that too much about you should explain those differences. They mm-hmm. often kind of sell it. I find a lot of the a lot of the schools as, hey, you can make a lot of money. You just come take this weekend class. And well, that's that's not the case. And so I think that there have been so many part timers for the last 25 years or so. And it's really been about that long. Before then, most people that sold real estate, it was their full time right. or job. And they're I said it's a great side hustle to grow with, but there's a vast difference. And for whatever reason, most brokerages, I feel like, especially mass market brokerages that have tens of thousands, mm-hmm. they don't they don't themselves push too much between the two. I mean, I'd never I don't think I'd ever hear like a Keller Williams coming out there saying, Hey, you should really ask your agent how many transactions have they done right. their type last year. <laughs> right. I hear that from boutique places. Yes. And so like, hey, if I'm having an oral surgery, I want the surgeon that you do twelve of these a week type of thing. Like that's the person I'm yep. going to, not like I think I remember reading that somewhere. We'll wing this as we go. Yep. Yeah, we talk internally in my team. If you needed knee surgery, you're going to go find the, the person who does this just knee surgery. <laughs> like, I don't right. want my family doctor who wouldn't do knee surgery. They're both doctors, both have a license. The expectation is quite a bit different. And, and you're right about uh, part-time versus full-time. I don't have the numbers, but I have read consistently that better than half of all licensed agents do very, very, very few deals and it's pretty hard to get good at this. It's kind of a catch-22 because yeah. you can't get good unless you have some deals under your belt, but you can't get deals under your belt unless you're any, you know, so what do you do? Right. Well, that's where the industries come from. I think the other side of it is actually buyers and sellers. It's their fault. It's our fault as people who buy properties. It, you know, for most people, it's the single largest transaction they'll do. Right. For a lot of people, it's their largest investment mm-hmm. as well outside of just this individual transaction. And that scares a lot of people. But because we do, as a buyer or seller, we typically do so few, people are scared. And when they're scared, they tend to not ask the questions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's the buyer and seller's fault that they don't know a list of questions to ask. You should interview and vet who who you're talking to. They don't even know what questions to ask. Right. So let's talk about that for a second while we're here. I mean, this is all related to what changes we think are coming. And so... As much change is coming to the industry, to realtors and brokerages, there's no way that can escape changing how real estate happens on on the ground with buyers and sellers. So if I'm a seller and I'm getting ready to sell my property, what sort of questions should I be asking? And first of all, before I even ask the question, who should I be talking to? There's millions of agents out there. There's hundreds or thousands in my local town. Where do I start? Well, if you already own a property, I'd ask your anybody of your new neighbors that have bought or sold recently what their experience was with their agents. I right. think everybody should everybody should talk to two or three agents at least. But they also should also know the other options that are out there and where that they apply. The first questions are, 
how fast do I have to sell and why do I have to sell? Right. It's a big difference between whether or not you're, you've lost your job and you're seeing foreclosure at some point in the future. That's a big difference than I had a family home that came to me. It, it was completely paid off. Right. I didn't have to sell it. And my agent knew that. And so he was able to direct the questions about, hey, you don't have to sell right now. Do you want to wait wait for, for perhaps stupid money or should we should, should we look to price it where the market actually is right now? So the first thing is, what's your financial situation? Mm-hmm. And, and you have to be honest with yourself about that. And yeah. so I, my ideal thing would be, you should have a budget and you should know where things are at and know what's going on before you, with your own numbers. Before. And I say that because some of the uh, people listening may have heard like, Zillow had what was called an iBuyer's market. It was basically wholesale <laughs> buying of houses. Hell, they were they're making an offer in your house before you showed yeah. up. And there, there's still some of those, those companies out there like Open Door. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a place for it. And it's not quite as bad as payday loans. Mm-hmm. But 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 also you have, and, and sometimes there's local agents. We have a big name here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm at. Well, he'll make you a cash offer. Right. But, but what's not going to come along with that is him telling you, Hey, the cash offer is going to be eight to twelve percent, right. what you would likely get on the market if you were to take it to sell. Well, depending on where you're at, if you're in a bad divorce situation, if you're in a financial situation, you might take eight percent less than you otherwise could get mm-hmm. to be able to close in twenty-one days. But that's not most people, and so I think a lot of people have sold their homes in those situations because the marketing has been really good, not knowing that they were getting perhaps eight to twelve percent less. Mm-hmm. And I should have looked at some of the other models, and so what your timeline in is really important. And I think the other questions are, what are my options out there? And then the question I always like is, whoever I'm speaking to, how do you get paid? And what's your financial interest? Mm -hmm. What are you doing and how are you getting paid? Because people don't typically ask that question. It comes up in the conversation, right? but but they don't have that discussion. What you're talking about is people that want to sell versus people that have to sell. And then as they approach agents, the the big question of, of how do you get paid? I Is it a taboo or you think they're so nervous about it because they don't do it very often that they don't want to ask that question? I think consumers don't want to ask it because most of society is not comfortable with the term healthy conflict. <laughs> if you're going to pay somebody thousands of dollars, you should be able to ask them that question yeah. and ask them, is that negotiable? You can go to Google or OpenAI and ask ChatGPT or perplexity.ai and ask them mm-hmm. and say, hey, what question should I ask my potential real estate agent to vet? It's just like with hiring. You should ask two or three agents the exact same questions. Not that you can't, right. can't ask others, but what are the three to five questions that you want to have asked so you can match those up? But the other thing then is, you know, I, I love, love your podcast you're restarting is like, what other options that are out there? Mm-hmm. I personally don't like Redfin's model for a variety of reasons, right. but it's a model that's different than the traditional real estate model. And consumers have no idea what actually happens when they go look for a home on Zillow. But it's like, if you think you're talking to a, a local agent when you're using Zillow, oh my gosh, you're so wrong. So, and so that's part of understanding what those options are before you even have that first conversation. And the internet is your friend. Just to touch on that Zillow thing real quick, what do you mean by that? Because I've heard you say this before that consumers don't understand what happens, you know, when they're on one of these websites, particularly like a Zillow, and they just stick their information in there. They think they're reaching out to that agent, right? Like about that house. Well, they may think that or they, but, but they, they, it's, it's just, it's different. And so I, when I talk to them, the average consumer thinks when they're using Zillow, it's not any different than them being on a Keller Williams or a Remax or, mm-hmm. you know, a local brokerage website. And what they don't realize is, yes, is Zillow a brokerage? Well, in 2024, yes, they are, but that's 
that's only been for a couple of years. Yep. And so anybody can look this up, but Zillow is a public company where the vast majority of their money comes from basically selling leads. They've become a brokerage so that they can get into the referral commission right. that works within real estate. But when you're looking for a home on Zillow, they're collecting your information. They're also collecting your budget. Hey, you're looking for a half a million dollar home. Mm -hmm. That makes your contact info a lot more valuable. And so on average, they make on average $997 for handing off somebody that's currently oh. looking to buy a home to an agent. And it's not a Zillow agent. You, uh, it, it's it's a local agent that's buying leads, but they're a marketing company for the most part. Right. And so I, I think what the consumers don't realize is like people listening, would you ever say, hey, I have a half a million dollar IRA and I'm going to move from Fidelity to some other brokerage in the next <laughs> 60 to 90 days? Please sell my information right. to the highest bidder so that you know I'll get called from these other people. Well. That's that's in essence what you're doing because whether mm -hmm. you're looking for a two hundred thousand dollar house or a five hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars or a two million dollar house, Zillow knows that by what you're saving and searching, and that's why they can get almost a thousand dollars for selling consumers' information. But if I'm on Zillow, I'm cruising, I'm saving, I'm doing all this stuff, and I don't key my information in, can they still sell it, or do I have to? Is it because um, I keyed it in and said, "Hey, contact me." Depends. There is a lot okay. of technology that does allow me to identify individuals, even if you haven't filled out a form. Right. I don't know if Zillow is using that or not, okay. but most people, you're going to give them your form because you're wanting to get the alerts for new listings right. that come out. And so then the question is, did you use your real email right. or like my wife's got this hotmail that, that she doesn't <laughs> ever give to anybody we care about. Right. Did you give them that? And so, but if you even give them that, they can still often piece it together yep. on the back end because- Hey, as, as a marketer by trade, there's a lot of technology that basically allows us to stalk you. And so if you give me your fake email address, I can probably get your real name and real email address and definitely your cell phone out of it. You know, I watch one CIA show and I'm up for three days. So let's let's not go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm going to get lost. <laughs> but, but the point was, it's a different model. And so if I engage a local agent, I'm working with an individual. When I fill out a form on Zillow, you're working with a marketing company that's capturing your information and providing it to some random local agent to you. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a big transaction. Yeah. As I mentioned, you should be vetting and talking to multiple people unless you would be comfortable having oral surgery by picking three random names out of the yellow pages and go, I'm just only going to talk to these three. What if it's your friend or your family member? I mean, is this a good place to start? Should you exclude them? Should you include them automatically? Or what do you do with that? Oh, you mean if they're an agent? Yeah. So I'm looking for an agent, but my cousin sells it or my my wife's brother sells real estate. Should I automatically include them or should I automatically exclude them? Or what would you do with them? I personally believe you should include them okay. because relationships are the most important thing to me, both in life and in business. Okay. And so part of that could be even just a, the, a short conversation for why I might not work with them. And so right. the first thing is, what type of property are you buying and selling and who are you? My wife and I knew at least 14 full-time real estate agents when we bought the house that I'm standing in mm -hmm. right now. And we didn't work with any of them. Why we is didn't that? Speak with, uh, we didn't speak with a few of them because if any of them focused on the type of person we were, we didn't know that. It wasn't really clear. The agent that we chose is one of three agents in this little team that helps married couples with young kids or soon to be young kids to about mid-teens in Roswell, Georgia and East Cobb, Georgia, and and that, that att regularly attend two major churches in this area. Super wow. focused about who they help. That's a niche. So we didn't have kids at the time either. And so now, do they help anyone else? 
Yes, but only if you were in that category. Maybe they sold your house. Now you've gone through a divorce and they won't help you on the condo on the other side because that's not their expertise. That's not what they do. And so our agent, Bobby, was able to bring up questions my wife and I should consider that we never even thought about. That's what focus means. And so if you're a single person buying, you know, buying in a mid-rise or high-rise condo in downtown Chicago or Tampa, well, that's a different agent than somebody that sells single family homes right. in those cities. And so if once you know who you actually are, to be able to talk to your family member or friend and say, hey, I want to know what you focus on. Mm -hmm. And if they say I focus on everything, well, you can tell them that you're weeding them out because you're looking for somebody right. that does their business in only one or two, three areas and doesn't also sell everything. I'm also looking for a horse ranch. But, you know, somebody, somebody that's going to sell me a $2 million horse ranch is not the same person that sells me a condo. Right. So that that's part of why I, I would like to include them if for nothing else, then it protects the relationship. With that said, I also would really like this question. Hey, friends and family, you get the best rate I would ever negotiate. To I would hope so. Because that's the relationship side. We don't need to negotiate to it. I'm going to be upfront. So if if it's in Alabama where there's a traditional 6% commission for right. selling a house they share, I'm going to say, do you give on that at all? Because if I find out you've ever given anybody less than 6%, our friendship is going to be at risk. It's going to be a problem. And, and if you'll go to a 5.2, that's just where we're at today. Hey, real quick. If I told you you could make more money and dodge a whole bunch of headaches the next time you sell a home, you'd want in, right? Well, let me introduce you to Living to Listing, the 10-day home selling transformation. It's our all-in-one online course designed to sidestep the most common problems that always seem to show up and cost you thousands of dollars or even kill the deal. And as we've learned, the best way to solve a problem is to avoid it by prepping your home the right way. In Living to Listing, we take you through every step from a major decluttering party to the nitty gritty of cleaning, repairs, staging, and even getting those picture perfect photos. These are tried and true strategies pulled from the trenches of my two decades in real estate, complete with the scars to prove it. You'll get hands-on checklists and resources for each part of the process. And here's my promise. If this course doesn't meet your high standards, let me know and I'll refund you. You've got nothing to lose. Check out the sample videos at livingtolisting.com. That's livingtolisting.com and see for yourself. Let me know what you think. I love the idea of the specialist. I mean, because one of my beefs for all the years I've been in this business is the the, the ubiquitous billboards, thinking of buying, selling a home, condo, farm, ranch, building, call me. I wouldn't call a lawyer who said I do everything. I wouldn't call a doctor right. who said I do everything. So yes, you're right. You should be looking for somebody who specializes in what you're selling or buying and then go from there, right? Right. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with choosing to work with or not working with a friend or family. But right. I, I've seen on the other side where you mentioned the example of a lawyer. It's like, hey, do you want to work with your close sibling or sibling-in-law mm -hmm. on your personal estate plan for your family? Well, maybe not because maybe that not. gives them a little bit too much. But if you have an aunt or uncle, maybe. Right. So back to the to the lawsuits and sort of where the, we think these ripples might go. If I'm a consumer, uh, what sort of changes do you think I'm going to see short term, long term? I mean, I think if we look at it, even just eight to 10 years, I think mm -hmm. unequivocally, the average consumer is going to know that they have multiple options about about how they can sell their home. And, and that's a good thing to me. I mean, I know if I'm going to if I'm going to sell my used car, you know, I can go to CarMax mm -hmm. or I can do a private seller or I can do a trade in a vehicle. Those are like most people just kind of know that. Right. 
And, and you wouldn't have known that even 15 years ago or 10 years ago, even with like that CarMax, even being an option. I think the average consumer will know that. I think the, the wise agents and the wise brokerages will both start to bring up additional options besides just the traditional market, traditional method, if for nothing else, so that they can have it as an option. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I think the better thing will be these lawsuits, there's a lot of money behind it. And so the, the news is covering it. So consumers are going to seek it out. And so especially the, the agents and brokerages that, that offer anything besides just a traditional buying and selling percentage-based mm-hmm. model, I think they're going to get a lot, there's a lot bigger opportunity for them to get their message out, both not just from content, but from media outlets and stuff, wanting to talk to them over the next two to three years, because it's something that's different. And the moment that somebody does that, then they start to tell their friends as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any merit to the concept that some of these alternatives have been around for years? I found companies back in the 60s that were doing this, but yet still less than 1% of properties are sold using these alternatives. Do you think there's any merit to the idea that the 800 pound gorilla that is traditional has maybe had something to do with that? Do you follow me? Yes. Uh, some of it, I don't think it's that the eight, I don't think it's tradi- the traditional like kind of 800 pound gorilla has necessarily pushed that. I think some of it's even just from a technology perspective. I mean, until a couple of years ago, it really wasn't conceivable to run large companies fully remote True. or, you know, work, work into some things. Well, for the last 15 years, I can run a background check on somebody for 15 to $20. I can get verification of who that's, yep. you know, but that's of, of who's coming in the door. And so now these things are possible. And so I think a lot of, some of it may have been the 800 pound gorilla, but also they didn't have an in, incentive to really push some of those other technologies. But I mean, we mentioned iBuyer. Wholesale buying of houses, cash price only. There's always been, you know, a sign on the side of your exit, you know, that said, hey, we'll buy your house for cash right. for, for 30 years. But that was almost nothing of the market compared to what it is, what now. It is now. And so technology has made a lot more of that possible. Okay. So we've got these alternative models that are hopefully, you know, at least from my perspective, that are hopefully taking root and becoming a little bit more mainstream. But other than alternative models, do you see a world where buyers will be paying their agents directly versus through the cooperative system? Or do you feel like that's still a long ways off? That's where like the the, the five to 10 years for the lawsuits mm-hmm. to kind of f- see their way through everything, that may force the change. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that, that option is going to come up more and more. Some people have said, do they think buyer's agents are going to go away? Yeah. I would never buy a property without an agent working on my behalf as the buyer, because it's very different than negotiating on uh, the types of contingencies on a house. And so I think the lawsuits are going to be the deciding factor for whether or not there's a force that happens. Where I think it will be really interesting is the traditional model has always been, I'm paying, say, the 6%, and then they're doing the kickback on the other side, although that's a legal term that I shouldn't probably say, (laughs) but it feels that way sometimes to consumers. Well, what happens when I go to my buyer's agent and go, regardless of what home I buy, I'm going to pay you $3,000 to help me in this transaction. And I think we'll start to see more of those models. And as that starts to happen, that's going to force the change of the traditional model, I think more than anything. Mm -hmm. And now people are open to having that conversation. Your point is spot on. I mean, what was it just two years ago that, that NER finally had to outlaw the practice of saying my services are free? 
certainly nobody I know would do that, but you know, it was definitely happening. So yeah, I think some of that transparency is is already on the way prior to the lawsuits. It hasn't reached the average like buying no. and selling transaction, but I spoke to a woman yesterday in Florida who's building a company where I actually didn't, I didn't know this. I mean, there's so many we hear about hedge funds buying companies, right? Uh, or sorry, buying buying single family properties, and she's like, but still like. 90, 95% of single family homes that are not owned by the homeowner are owned by a mom and pop that you know, own somewhere between, you know, like five and even as high as yep. 500 homes. Yep. And and so the, she's ha- trying to think about how does she do succession planning? Yeah. Well, my friend Paulo here in Georgia, he owns, I think last time I spoke, 32 homes as rental properties, single family homes. Yep. Well, I would guarantee that he has a different transaction structure right. with his agent. Yeah. Than he than, than I would when I go out the door, and so that we're just going to see continue to kind of come out from there. Yeah, my dad was a buy and hold guy. We'd buy him at auction, you know, sheriff's auctions, pay five grand for a house, and then he would sit on it. He sat on it until he passed away. But to your point, yeah, his relationship with his realtors, plural was unique to say the least. Moving sort of still down this thread, whether it's because of the lawsuits or not, but we've seen an injection of technology, most recently AI, chat GPT or BARD, and also the the pure explosion of social media in the last decade, not just the number of formats, but the number of users. You hear about Instagram with billions, Facebook with billions, like one seventh of the world's population is on Instagram, probably right now. Uh, It's so... As, as a consumer selling a property, um, or as I'm looking into agents, how important is this and where is this headed? Because you have a lot of involvement in technology. Yeah, it does depend on the type of property you're selling. But I'd say if you're, if you're selling, the single biggest thing you can look for is, are they, you know, can you find them online? Are they doing digital marketing themselves? And so I think the biggest thing is looking at what your agent offers and does that match up with, with with either how much work you're wanting to do or not do? If they're really good at digital marketing, well, that can be great for getting it out there, but but you can do a lot of that yourself. I mean, the, there's so many of these local buy-sell groups. I'm in Roswell, Georgia, around the area where if I, you know, I want to sell my car or I want to sell basketball hoop. Right. Like I right. have 15 offers by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, the DIY model versus the done-for-you model. And so I think that that's the biggest thing is, what is your agent going to do for you? And when you listen to what their pitch is, do you go, well, I could do a lot of that myself and I'm comfortable doing it. Okay. Like if, if your property gets up there, well, then on the other hand, all you have to do is be like, okay, if the property's listed, how do you help get that continue to be shared more and more? You can mm-hmm. do a lot of that yourself and perhaps save thousands and thousands of dollars. Okay. Well, that's a conversation you should be having. So you feel like the consumer can get more involved in the social media marketing of their own property? Absolutely. But I, I think, think I they can. You... It doesn't mean that they have to. Right. I mean, the beauty the beauty about being able about the MLS versus, say, selling a used car is once a, once a property gets in the MLS, like all the agents have access yeah. to it. It's going to be in Zillow. Consumers are going to get the alert that the property is for sale. Yep, and right. so then the question is, do you want to... Do, do you want to help promote that or not? I can assure you if I'm choosing the traditional model and I'm betting three agents and one of those is I'm only listening on the MLS and I'm, I'm taking a 6% commission, which I'll share part of. And on the other side is somebody that gives me a marketing plan for my property that says we listed in the MLS and here's the other things and, we do. Right. And I have an email list of this and I have an email list of investors. Well, the one that only listed on the MLS for the traditional model is out from the from, from that initial discussion. 
But on the other side, it's like, okay, how much work do I want to do? The same thing is like, how much do you right. want to do for work in your property prior to listing it? Should you paint it? What should mm -hmm. you do? Well, well, those are considerations you should have. I think the marketing of your house is the same thing. You know, I have a Facebook group for my neighborhood. We only have 120, about 120 homes in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. People regularly ask, do you, anybody thinking about listing? We want to know. Right. Well, if I was getting ready to list, the moment it goes online, I'm going to make sure that I post in a post in my, my, my mm -hmm. local neighborhood Facebook group to make sure As that well. others are aware of it. Because like I got 119 other homes that some people, some percentage of those have friends that would like to move close by. Yep. We call them second and level so I friends. I want to make sure yeah. that they didn't just wait to see if there was an alert that came up. Occasionally we get sellers who come to us and say, hey, my from my Facebook group or somebody from my church heard we were thinking about selling. Should I just sell it to them? What's your answer? Depends on the price. And so if somebody came to me with that, I'm I, that's one of the cases where I'm going to get my own agent right. to to give me a market price. Yep. And if it's in the market price, I might, I might go ahead and just do that. But I... The, you know, the agent that came with this came with the buyers there to represent the buyer. Correct. And so is that a good price or not? <laughs> right. So technically well, we bought our property off market, but our agent was one of three agents that, that was brought in to help evaluate with this list going to be listing agent, what the price should be. Well, let's flip that around then as the buyer, you, you liked that deal, right? Because you weren't what competing with I wasn't competing. the rest of the world. And that's exactly what we tell sellers when they come to us with that scenario is look it, at the end of the day, we advise you decide, but if this was Glenn Witten money, I'd put that sucker on the market at least for a day or two, because look, I might be overcharging or undercharging you. I don't really know. And right. even if I got several agents to tell me what they thought it was worth, there's nothing like the market speaking to me directly. I would say it all depends on what's most important to you. And so when I sold my last used car, I sold it to my brother. Mm -hmm. And so could I have got more if I had put it on a website or sold it myself? Yes. Probably. So, but what I called him was this, here's what I'm going to list it for. Here's what I would take. Mm -hmm. Do you mm -hmm. want the lower price? Mm -hmm. So like in our case, while we were in the range, because we, we didn't make an offer, we were in the range of what, of what they were considering to list for. It was also important to the seller that somebody like that, her and her husband before yeah. kind of took the property yep. going forward We see that and, and didn't need, you know, could they have made an extra 20 grand? Maybe, maybe they wouldn't have got the extra money as well if it had gone to market. And so, but, but for her, she felt good by saying a family like where we were 25 years ago mm -hmm. is going to come in here and raise kids. We see that a lot, Kurt, with multiple offers and we'll side by side them with financials and all the pertinent terms and the seller, well, probably every other seller throws me a curveball and chooses an offer that is like second or third from our ranking. And it all comes down to, we really, really like them. You know what? It's their house. It's their money. It's their situation. Just yesterday, we had to let a seller know that their first buyer was falling apart and we had a backup and I thought it was going to be, you know, a rough call. I get on the phone with the sellers and they're like, oh, good. Like, <laughs> what? What? You guys must know something I don't. And the same thing. We really love the backup buyer. We talk to them all the time. They just get that warm fuzzy that, you know, so they weren't upset at all. So you just never know. You just never know. And there's nothing wrong with it either. You can sell to whoever you want to. Everyone's financial situation is different, but buying and selling your house is very similar to kind of like somebody doing a will with mm -hmm. multiple kids. Like too many people, I think just say, Hey, 
I, I, I have three kids. I split things up equally. Well, a will is what's your intention. You're leaving a legacy. Maybe one kid's done really well, and 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 you give them you give them a picture frame only, like because it, the the others don't yeah. need it. You don't have to treat everything equally because it's you know it's it is a per, part of our legacy what we're giving on. Yeah. So look, yeah. you know, as we kind of wind this down, there's a couple of questions I like to ask, and the first one is, and this may seem a little left field, but not really. Just based on your experience. Is it better to overprice a property and hold out, or is it better to underprice a property? You can't, I promise you, in this hypothetical Glenn scenario, you can't get it right. You have to choose overprice or underprice. Which one do you choose? If I don't have to sell, I'll overprice every day. Okay. And if you do? If I have to sell, I'm going to, I'm going to underprice and hope that I, and hope I get a bidding war. And then if people want to learn more about you, connect with you, where would you direct them? My personal website, it's the hub to Splinter off to anything else. If you want to see what it lo- what an executive looks like <laughs> raising kids, it'll send you to Instagram or LinkedIn for other stuff. But Kurt Euler, U-H-L-I-R.com. Mm-hmm. And they can hear a lot about servant leadership and growing companies and in some cases even how to raise kids. Any passion projects going on right now? You mentioned, you know, high, what was it? High, high achievement person? High achieving servant, servant leadership. leadership. What is that in a nutshell? So I have a different take on servant leadership from a how to grow companies and raise kids level mm-hmm. standpoint. And so I'm a member of the National Speakers Association and mm-hmm. speak around the world on to companies and, and groups about a, diff- a non-authoritative way of leadership mm-hmm. to still get the same outcomes you'd like. So that's one of my passion projects. The other one is my wife and I have a mountain property. And so I've been making hiking trails for a number of years. And so some cases, my uh, four-year-old and I get in a skid steer and we go carve through the woods. And nice. other cases, I'm out there with a with an ax and a hoe getting ready for friends coming up. I'm never vacationing with you. I'm a beach guy. So, (laughs) but any parting words, anything for my sellers that they should kind of keep in mind as we head, head off into the next, the next market. They should always look at optionality. This is a buying and selling a home is a big, it's, it's a, big thing that could change change your monetary outcome. Mm-hmm. And you likely have more options than what you're aware of. And you may be willing to take on more options. And so if you don't know what those options are, you can't even make a wise decision. Yep. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all your wisdom that you shared with us. And I know that I learned a lot today and hopefully everybody else did. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. Huge thanks to our guest, Kurt Euler, for sharing so much about marketing and the future of real estate. I know my IQ went up a couple points. Before we go, just a reminder that the Talking Realty Podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Property Group, a family-owned brokerage where we help hundreds of home sellers save millions of dollars and avoid countless headaches every year. Check us out at ohiomlsflatfee.com. If today's conversation sparked a new idea or answered a burning question, don't keep it to yourself. Share this episode with friends and family who might benefit from it. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Talking Realty for more insights, tips, and stories to help you navigate the world of home selling. And if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Just head over to TalkingRealty.com and say hi. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, keep making smart moves in your real estate journey. This is Glenn Witten signing off from Talking Realty. And remember, you can sell it. We can help.